0: The goal of diet is not perfection. No one needs to be perfect. This isn't about living like a monk and only eating air and, you know, organic fillets of New York strip and and organic lettuce. That's not the end goal. The end goal is for you to live your life on this planet and express what you love and do it with maximal health. I mean, if health isn't one of your primary life goals, then I would argue you've got some priorities that aren't quite in order because health underlies everything. Let's be clear on that. The healthier you are, the more joy you can bring to life, the more love you can spread, the more you can actualize your own goals and bring your gift to the world. And that's what we're here to do. So if that's not where you're at, get it in gear, dude, babe. Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue About the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello, listeners, greetings and salutations. Today, we're gonna share some diet thoughts. I'd like to share with you some ideas on diet. I get a lot of people asking me, well, what should I eat? And specifically, questions about what to eat on the bike, but also what to eat off the bike. And I'm gonna try to make things pretty simple, because diet really is very simple. What obfuscates the matter is the fact that we live in 2020 where we have convenience stores and supermarkets with lots and lots of crappy food options. So we do need to dive a bit into the nature of food and how food has changed over a million years. And I'm not going to go down a giant wormhole on that. But what I'm saying is that we have to understand where food comes from and how it's been processed and changed. First, a brief disclaimer. I want to say that I'm really not here to be a know-it-all or tell you about all the things that I know and the things that you don't. That's not the objective of this whole project. Um, And this is inspired by a comment I did have on one of my reviews somewhere in some internet hole. And basically the person was saying that I was kind of coming off as a know-it-all and I can appreciate that perspective but I want to be clear that my intent is to share what I've learned and provide a platform for discussion. In this case, the discussion happens to be with myself because this is going to be a solo episode. Sorry about that. Don't have any brilliant intellect to bounce things off of. Uh, That format may change in the future, but for now this is where it's at and I feel it's important to get this information out. So I'm here to educate, discuss, illuminate, share, spread the love. If you have comments or you disagree with something specific I say, fire the photons. You know where to hit me. Or if you don't, that's at fastlabs.com. Send me your comments. Second disclaimer, since we're on episode 11 now, my inbox has taken a significant, well, let's just say the volume is increasing. So I'm doing the best I can to stay on top of it. Bear with me. I appreciate your patience. I'm just one man. As you know, I also take very seriously walking the walk. Meaning if I'm telling you on my podcast that you need to have work-life balance, it would make me quite a hypocrite if I were to be responding to emails at one in the morning and waking up with a 3% whoop score. Not pointing any fingers, Trevor, but uh, I don't wear a whoop anymore. <laughs> did for a while and Move, move past that. Learn the lessons I need to learn. Great tool. What I'm saying is I am mindful of my work-life balance. And I make time to do my Tai Chi every day because I know that it's going to make me healthier and more effective in my work. Okay, diet. Here's the bottom line. You should only put something in your mouth if it's been or can be peeled, picked, caught, or skinned. Another way to look at it is, if it wasn't here 500 years ago, don't eat it. Twinkies were not here 500 years ago. Microwave pizzas were not here 500 years ago. Some of the ingredients you find in a microwave pizza, you could maybe find in a forest. But that's the way I think we need to think about it. Can you find it in a river? Can you find it in a forest? Can you find it on a farm? Is it edible? Just because you can find it there doesn't mean you should eat it, but... What I'm saying is that should be the form that the majority of your food takes. Another way to think about that is moving away from the processing of foods or the processization, which is probably not a word. The more processed a food is, the more things are done to it before it gets to your mouth. Generally speaking, the worse it is, the lower the nutrient value and the less recognizable it is by your body. Our digestive tracts have developed over I don't know how many really big number of years. And processed food has only appeared on this planet, kapoof, into our cupboards in the last 50, 100 years. We're talking about things like, well, a great example is a cracker. Crackers are actually kind of made in molds, which is a really weird concept if you think about it. We take all these grains and we boil them and process them and do them to things, do things to them to make them into a handy, tasty shape. They don't just come out looking like a Triscuit from some magical farm fairy. They are processed into that shape to make them into tidy squares. And what's upsetting about that to me, that kind of pisses me off. It's like that bumper sticker. If you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. That upsets me because what that means to me is that someone in some food lab somewhere did a survey or came up with an idea or decided that a certain mouth texture or mouth feel, the more refined food, the more refined a food is, as a general rule, the worse it is for you and the less of it you should consume. Do you see croissants in a forest? No. Do you see donuts in a forest? Definitely not. Now, I know some of you are rolling your eyes and probably already press stop because as soon as I say anything about donuts in a negative light, you're going to freak out or bacon for that matter. Yeah, you can find bacon on a farm. You have to do a bit of processing. You got to kill the pig and slice up the pig and then cure the meat to some degree in some form or another. And then, of course, cook it. Cooking is a form of processing. Am I a raw food advocate? Not necessarily, but I think it makes up a component of our diet. So uh, that gets down some of the nuances which we'll get into. But I think some really important concepts are right now. Well, I'll say in the last 30, 40 years, there's been this big focus on the concept of macronutrients. When I say macronutrients, of course, I mean carbohydrates, protein, and grams of fat. And we look at diets. A lot of these diets that we see, whether we're talking about the Atkins diet or the keto diet or the paleo diet, a lot of diets may be concerned with the counting of macronutrients. And for most people, in my experience, counting macronutrients isn't really a useful metric. It's not really the way to approach a diet. Instead of counting macronutrients, I would prefer that you count quality score. The higher quality food you eat, the more nutrient dense it's going to be, the healthier it's going to be for you. And the macros will work themselves out for the most part, as long as we're being sensible. I'm not saying you can ignore macros. You have to have a basic concept of what macronutrients are and what the elements of the food are that go on your plate. That's important. For example, if you eat, you can eat really high quality organic locally produced food, but if it's 100% starchy carbohydrates, you're going to encounter some blood sugar issues. It doesn't matter. A starch is a starch to a certain degree. There is a difference between eating a whole banana and eating refined banana powder. Those will have different impacts on your blood sugar and on the nutrient density of the food. That said, focusing on macronutrients is kind of, in my opinion, the is not the optimal way to refine a diet. It's something to keep in mind the focus of a diet needs to be on whole natural foods in unprocessed form. And if you're focusing on that with a secondary eye on macros, then you're going to be dialed. I realize that's very broad, so don't worry, we're not stopping there. I'm going to unpack a bit more on how you might direct some of your nutrient-oriented activities, otherwise known as food. Eating is a complicated issue. People eat for a lot of reasons. I mean, ostensibly, superficially, you might think that we just eat to survive or we eat because we're hungry. But of course, people eat for many other reasons. Eating is associated with safety and home. Well, hopefully for most most of us, it is. I mean, we can all, I'm sure, picture a nice holiday moment at home with our families and there's inevitably food associated with that. Food is associated with satiation and comfort. It's associated with safety to a degree. If you can't eat, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, then it's likely you're going to have some pretty serious thoughts about your own mortality or at least your health. People can also learn to eat to fill emotional voids, to distract from unsolvable or seemingly unsolvable problems. And you can, of course, learn to eat to offset boredom. Flavor is a thing. And this is where one of our little modern food trappings starts to cause us big problems because we have foods that are so overloaded with flavors, with stimulant stimulating flavors, whether that's MSG or tons of sugar, lots of salt or lots of fats that those foods can become little addictive daily habits and they produce a specific series of chemical reactions that we find is pleasurable. And then you get hooked. That's how you get hooked on a food. And that food can be, that can take the form of any number of things. But of course, that's a problematic relationship with food. Really food fundamentally is, it's a source of energy and information. And when I say energy, I don't necessarily just mean fuel, like you're fueling your car with gasoline to unpack that slightly to dissect when you go to the gas station, let's say you you're driving down a big street and there are 10 different gas stations on the strip and they've all got the price of the fuel displayed. Now. There are probably subtle nuances in the differences of fuel, and I'm not a motor sports person or a car person. I'm sure to someone who is really in, involved in this world, they could tell me that a certain type of gasoline or fuel is going to do better with their engine or worse, depending on the performance of their engine, etc. cetera. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's just say that if you're driving your Honda Accord, all fuel is equal. The only difference is the octane, right? 88, 90, 92 or whatever. Okay. When we apply the same concept to food and we go to the grocery store, what do we do? We end up shopping for the cheapest fuel source available. This is a big flaw in logic. And I know a lot of people operate this way their whole lives and there are several problems with it, but food is I'll say not the area to race to the bottom. Look, I mean, I'm sure we all know people who spend you know, $10,000 on their road bike, and they won't accept anything other than Dura-Ace or Campy Record or, you know, Red ETAP, and they spend $500 on an oversized pulley system. But at the same time, they're going to a supermarket and buying the cheapest food possible. And when you buy the cheapest food possible, you're by definition buying food that's been scaled and scaled food will have lower nutrient content and probably increased toxicity. Anytime you scale food or industrialize food you're going to increase things like glyphosate content. You're going to, you're going to increase by increasing profitability of food. You're maximizing shelf life. And you're also maximizing all the mainline channels of distribution. What am I saying? I'm saying that food's been on a, in a warehouse, on a truck and in a warehouse and on a shelf for a long period of time, because when you scale food, you have to make it last a long time. Cheap food is food that can be on a shelf for six months and still sell. So the longer the expiration date of a food, the worse it is for you. There's another good guideline. So when you're buying cheap food, you're buying industrialized scaled food by definition. And that means that you're sacrificing nutrient density, which is always a basic goal of nutrition and freshness. And the longer the food sits on the shelf, the lower the energy of the food. This is going to sound pretty esoteric, but it's got less chi. like what? everything's made of stardust and sunlight, man. Well, here's a goofy way to look at food. Like pick up that granola bar that's been on a shelf for eight months. Look at it. How much sunlight's in that granola bar? Now pick up a fresh apple. I'm not talking about an apple that's been in cold storage for a year and waxed to death. I'm talking about an organic apple that you pick from a tree in the fall during apple season. How much sunlight's in that apple? See what I'm getting at? So ask yourself that before you take your next bite, how much sunlight's in this food? I told you I was a hippie, different micro macronutrients, different macronutrients have been we'll say in fashion or out of fashion in the last about 30 years. Right? Again, we're talking about proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. So in the eighties fat was demonized fat was a bad thing. Everything was low fat. We had low fat pizza, no fat pizza. We had, which is a contradiction to terms. It's like fresh frozen, right? I mean, come on. Uh, we had fat free cheese, fat, and people thought erroneously in case you're still thinking this way. And look, we've all been programmed by diet and diet guidelines and diet articles and magazines and media. I mean, we stand in line at the supermarket and you look at the magazine covers. And in 1984, it said it had a picture of a super hot chick with a tape measure around her waist that said some ridiculous number. And she had the perfect hourglass figure that had been airbrushed to death. And it said, do you want to lose weight now? 10 zero fat foods, right? And just reading that message reinforces our belief system or tries to enforce build and enforce a belief system that fat is bad. This is what happened in the eighties. Then in the nineties, it was red meat, red meat will give you heart disease. And there are still people I have heated visceral debates with about this topic. Even today in the last year, there are people who believe that red meat will give you heart disease. And this is not true. However, there is some nuance to that discussion. So I will unpack that in a moment. Now, moving forward with the concept in 2020, carbs are the villain carbs, 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 carbs are bad. Carbs will make you fat. Carbs will make you slow. Carbs will give you brain fog. Carbohydrates will ruin your ketogenic figure and keto is the thing or carnivore is the thing, right? Okay. Can we just recognize that humans eat lots of variety of different foods and we're capable of it? And yes, we do have incisors and molars. So based on that alone, we've got grinding teeth that can chew up vegetables and we've got cutting teeth that can bite into meat, right? We're not ruminants. We don't have 12 stomachs. So if we eat only grass, chances are things might not work out well. Likewise, we are not carnivores. Although Paul Saladino would disagree. And we do not only have incisors, we don't hunt and eat raw deer, most of us. Okay. So what I'm recognizing here and I think it's important for us to witness is that macronutrients go through a cycle of demonization, just like jeans and I don't wear denim. Um, but there was a time when I did and there was a time when I wore skinny jeans because I'm a bike rider. I never really went through a bell-bottom phase, maybe had a couple pairs pair of stovepipes, but genes go in and out of fashion and so do macronutrients. And right now carbs are bad and protein is the cool thing. And fats are the cool thing. We'll probably go through another cycle of that in another 10 years. I'm just saying, be aware of it. I mean, this is another example of polarized thinking, which I'm sure you agree we can apply to many aspects of our lives right now. This is good. This is bad. So What do you do? All right. I'm going to give you a framework from which you can help have an intuition on how your macronutrient should play out in your diet. And this is a powerful tool. It's just a starting point and it is called the metabolic typing diet. Wait a minute, Pierce. You just said that diets don't work for people. Wait, did I say that? I'm going to say it now. All these diets, These are based on instantial generalization, logic errors. What does that mean? It means that one person had great success with a diet and they applied it to a few of their friends and then they wrote a book about it or they opened a practice and they applied it to their clients and they had great success. And then they started seeing this wonderful outcome of the diet, insert any diet that you can think of in this paradigm. And it's more or less the same. And I'm not bashing these people like their experience is valid. They helped people. Some people maybe were eating you know, all pasta and refined carbohydrates. And then they discovered the carnivore diet and their health skyrocketed, or they went vegetarian and their health got much better. I'm not discounting these experiences. These are valid. The rule, the only rule of diet is that people are individuals or as Paul would say, Paul check, one of my teachers, God is a novelty generator, meaning everybody's an individual. That means that what Colby can have for breakfast is not the same as what Janet can have for breakfast. We might be able to eat the same breakfast, but she might feel like crap two hours later. She might have brain fog. She might have bad energy or not be able to connect all her amazing cognitive abilities to make sentences and do the work that she has to do. On the other hand, I might thrive on a given diet, a a given breakfast. And if we changed chairs the next day and I ate what she eats for breakfast, I might feel horrible on the bike or in, my strength workout. So we have to dial in and figure out what works for us. And this metabolic typing diet, the primary premise of it is that you have to figure out what works for you. And this is also part of Paul's teachings that ultimately you have to very carefully and intentionally select foods that work for you and foods that do not. And the longer I've been on this planet earth, the better I've gotten at that. And this is one reason why when people say, oh man, getting old sucks, I have to vehemently disagree because I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I was 22. And this is only one of a thousand examples of that paradigm. So I can get up almost every day and nail the diet and feel like I'm performing at my best. And I don't just mean on the bike. I mean, in life, I've got balanced blood sugar, I've got good cognitive ability. I can hopefully most of the time make the words come out of my brain to my mouth hole and say good sentence. So as someone who talks into a microphone now, pretty regularly, that's pretty important. When you use the metabolic typing diet, uh, by the way, you can find this questionnaire online. We'll put a link in the old show notes and we'll put a, a link to the main website for this resource. Uh, it's metabolic typingonline.com. but fear not. You can just click a link don't have to remember all that if you don't want to. And there's a questionnaire you take and it gives you an idea and it's going to put you in three broad categories initially. As you research more about it on the site, you can further refine what that means for you and learn more about your own metabolism and how you respond to food. And once you have this insight, then it can help you ultimately refine your own personal choices in diet and start to optimize them. So this is a very useful tool, but broadly speaking, it'll put you into one of three categories, an equatorial, a polar, or a mixed. An equatorial type is probably someone who lives in or whose ancestry is from an equatorial climate zone, i.e. a warmer, summerier, hotter climate zone. And what happens, think about the way that your ancestors lived in that type of environment, It's really hot. So you're going to gravitate away from heavier foods. This is higher fat foods, heavier protein foods, probably going to gravitate towards more carbohydrate foods, starchier foods. And that's, I hope that's sort of somewhat intuitively obvious based on the environment that the people are living in. Also you have to look at what foods are available to the people who live in that part of the world. I'm talking about before we could buy strawberries from Brazil and before we could buy apples 12 months a year, by the way, Apples don't grow on trees 12 months a year. So having a clue about some seasonality of food is an important part of this equation. We shouldn't necessarily be eating apples year-round. If you're eating them now, for example, you're about as far from apple season as you got. And that means your apple sat on a truck or in a warehouse and was probably sprayed with something to help it stay that perfect ruby red color. You'd be shocked if you want to dig into the food industry and find out what they do to your food to keep it shelf stable, even fruits and vegetables. Again, if you're not paying attention, then you're not pissed off. So when you're an equatorial type, you, your diet should be skewed a little bit more or shifted, we'll say more towards the carbohydrate end of the spectrum and away from the fat end spectrum. Does that mean you eat no fat? No, I would argue that no human on earth should eat a zero or low fat diet. Why? because we've got lots and lots of cells in our body, trillions specifically, and every single cell membrane is made up of fat. And guess what your brain is made of mostly fat. So do you want to starve your brain and disable the ability of your cells to repair themselves? I don't think that sounds like a good idea, a good way to inhabit your biological spacesuit, this vessel that we've been giving this bag of stardust. So that's equatorial. A polar type, as you might imagine, gravitate towards the other end of the spectrum, heavier proteins, heavier fats, a higher content of healthy fat, healthy being the operative word there. Although we can apply that to all three macronutrients and I'll unpack that too. So when you live, let's take our textbook classic example. If you're an Eskimo and you live in the Arctic circle somewhere, you don't have a lot of green vegetables growing on plants above ground, you've got starchy tubers probably. And so you're going to eat some of those and you've got, you're going to gravitate towards fattier meats that give you more sustenance and a little more digestive heat to endure cold temperatures, especially during the winter. That's the other type. So those are the two main polarities of type. And then in the middle, we have a mixed type. And depending on your ancestry and also some other lifestyle factors, you can end up in the middle. The polar type tends to burn carbohydrates very quickly. So when someone has a polar disposition, a polar dietary typing, and they have too many carbs in their diet, especially refined carbs that will spike blood sugar, they can have a lot of health issues. It's quite easy for them to have weight gain and blood sugar swings and a lot of other issues that go down the chain from there. Likewise, if someone's from, if someone is really inclined towards an equatorial type and they're eating lots of heavy proteins, lots of red meats, a lot of fattier cuts of meat that can cause them issues because their body doesn't have the capacity to digest that heavier meal. So they're just not going to do as well. So this is a really basic framework from which to start to refine your dietary choices. And if you realize, Hey, I'm my, I'm qu- it's quite likely my ancestors are from Northern Scotland and I'm trying to be a vegetarian. Well, that could be step one to figuring out why things maybe aren't working for you. I'm not begging on vegetarianism. What I'm saying is figure out your own type. This can be quite insightful. Some other points, think about your vegetables in different ways. You can categorize them broadly above ground, and below ground, below ground, vegetables, vegetables that grow in the earth, like carrots, yams, tubers, parsnips, sweet potatoes, purple potatoes, these types of vegetables tend to be starchy and good sources of carbohydrates. I use the word good there. I try not to glorify or demonize foods in general but I say good because I feel like most people can get away with eating these when they do need some carbohydrates and they're relatively benign, meaning they've got good nutrient density. We're not talking about russet potatoes. That's one of my last choices. Anything but colorful below ground vegetables. That's a good way to phrase it. These are my first choice for fueling up for a hard day of training. I do believe there is some value in sparing carbohydrate for the right time. And for me personally, and I think for a lot of endurance athletes, when I consume an excess of carbs, it's easy for me to put on a kilogram or two. And this is not really desirable for me. Weight isn't a focus of my training at this point in my life, but it is something I keep an eye on. So how I phrase it is pad hard training with carbohydrates. And this is something that I learned in part from Dr. Alan Lim, whom I did a podcast with already years ago. He taught me this as an athlete, but the rule is pretty simple. You got a really hard day coming up the night before you should probably have some carbs with dinner the morning of if you're eating breakfast, which I usually recommend for most people, you should have some carbs. Now I am actually quite polar in my metabolic typing profile, very polar. So that means I'm quite sensitive to carbohydrates. So sensitive that if I were to have only a bowl of oatmeal before a long ride, it would be about 42 minutes in before I would have a colossal blood sugar crash and probably get quite dizzy. And then you don't want to see that. It's ugly. So I have to offset carbohydrates with something that stabilizes blood sugar. And that thing is healthy fat. I'm choosing the word healthy fat because right now fat, there's still some concern about fat in the diet. And the simple equation is that people see that if they eat fat on their plate, it becomes fat on their body. And that is not how things work. The food we eat has an impact on our bodies hormonally and also biochemically in the sense that it influences blood sugar. So when we go, when we need to offset carbohydrate consumption or ensure that we do not have a blood sugar crash, a subsequent crash from the rise, Right, So just in case people are confused on this issue, really simply put, when you eat a high carbohydrate meal and it spikes your blood sugar, your body responds to that spike in blood sugar because it doesn't really want things to get too out of bounds. The blood in particular is an equalizer. It wants things to be in a somewhat narrow range. This is why when the blood starts to become a little bit acidic, it will find minerals to alkalize the blood. And it's a very narrow range that your blood can stay in terms of acid and alkaline but same thing goes for blood sugar. Only probably the range becomes um, less sensitive over time. The more refined carbohydrates or the more processed foods you eat. This is insulin insensitivity and this is not an ideal scenario. We actually want ourselves to be quite insulin sensitive. We want our bodies to be strong and capable of keeping insulin in a very narrow range. So when we eat a crap ton of refined stuff of Entenmann's donuts all the time. Eventually your body starts to become less sensitive to those blood sugar swings and you have more and more bigger blood sugar swings. Blood sugar rises higher after you eat the donuts, and then your body finally produces insulin, which lowers blood sugar. And that cycle, every time you go through that extreme cycle, that causes downstream problems in health. One of which frequently is weight gain or even adult onset diabetes, potentially for endurance athletes, I recommend that you pad your hard training with carbohydrates. So that means before a really hard ride, you're going to have carbs in the, the dinner or the breakfast during the ride, you can have some carbs. And after the ride, you have to refuel your glycogen tank. If you empty the tank of carbohydrates, I mean, remember anytime you're above threshold, you're burning a, some percentage of carbohydrates and in particular for cycling, when you need explosive short efforts, I don't care what you read about keto. From everything I've learned, the science is quite clear above threshold, in particular for anaerobic glycolysis, you need carbohydrates to go that fast. It's just straight up. So if you're talking about doing a 1000 kilometer, three volcano sprint race in Italy, that's a race you could potentially go ketogenic for, but anything under 150 miles, you need carbs in some amount and the shorter and more intense the race, the more you need carbohydrate. So if you're trying to go keto and do four kilometer individual pursuits on the track, I think you are ice skating up a really steep hill. So baseline rule is we can fill our plate first with vegetables, then with protein of choice, add healthy fats. If desired and it works well for you, you can then add another starch. I say another, because if you choose below ground vegetables, you're choosing vegetables and starch already. So that means your meal could consist of a sweet potato with olive oil or goat butter as a hypothetical example and a protein, a piece of steak or a piece of fish. And that would be an, a small salad, some greens. This is a basic, very basic and simple, actionable meal formula where the variables change is based on your metabolic profile and your tastes and how you tolerate different types of foods. So back to thinking about why people eat, we eat for different reasons. And one of those reasons is flavor. Food is yummy. We like to eat food. So when you eat food and you pick food based on flavor, there's nothing wrong with that. However, I will say that it can cause problems because we have so many highly addictive foods and foods that have been so highly manipulated available to us today. A great example of this is barbecue. Barbecue takes a perfectly good piece of meat and annihilates it with a crap ton of sugar and salt. And I know lots of men in particular who are just in love with barbecue. Same with bacon. It's really the same concept. Bacon is a really fatty cut of meat that's been salted to death and most of the time sugared to death. So yeah, bacon's delicious. I like bacon as much as everybody, but I have learned that I do not do well with more than about three bites of bacon. And that lesson has been presented to me many times. And as the saying goes, life will give you the lesson until you pass it. And when you pass it, you may move on to the next lesson, but until you pass it, the lesson will be repeated. It took me a few repeats of bacon because bacon's good. Now I know it's, it's not rocket science. If I eat more than one and a half pieces of bacon, even the highest quality bacon I can possibly find, uh, things don't go well for me. Specifically, I get, I get dizzy and I think it's the combination of that particular cut of fat with the salt and the sugar. Even if I go sugar free, I can still about two pieces of good sized bacon is about my maximum that I can do. And that's about once a week tops. Okay. So that brings me back to why I eat the food I eat. And people can struggle with this and it really, it just comes down to attachment. People love their experiences. And look, I'm not bashing anybody here. I love to experience certain things too. It's okay to go through life with preferences. And I'm not saying that anyone should be perfect. The goal of diet is not perfection. No one needs to be perfect. This isn't about living like a monk and only eating air and, you know, organic fillets of New York strip and and organic lettuce. That's not the end goal. The end goal is for you to live your life on this planet and express what you love and do it with maximal health. I mean, if health isn't one of your primary life goals, then I would argue you've got some priorities that aren't quite in order because health underlies everything. Let's be clear on that. The healthier you are, the more joy you can bring to life, the more love you can spread, the more you can actualize your own goals and bring your gift to the world. that's what we're here to do. So if that's not where you're at, get it in gear, dude, babe, you know, back to Paul's teachings about listening to your soul, or we could say listening, really listening to the way your body responds to food. I think that's a really important takeaway from this entire conversation because ultimately there's so many aspects of our society that take us away from connection with our body. And you've heard my, if you've heard my podcasts on metrics and how I think they can distract us from the exercise of being present in your body while riding, being present in your body while lifting a weight or running up a mountain or whatever you're doing, swimming in the water. I think presence in your body and listening connection with self is one of the primary goals of exercise. And while if we extend that same philosophy to eating, listening to your body is a really, really ostensibly, or not even ostensibly, but potentially subtle act, but it's really not. When you tune in and turn your ear towards your body after you eat, you can really decipher what works and what doesn't. And this is something in the last few years that I've really started to refine. I've always been sensitive to foods that didn't work for me, but again the further i go in this life journey the better i get at it so i've known for a long time that for example a bowl of oatmeal won't work for me before a ride on its own i've got to have a couple of eggs or a source of fat to offset those carbohydrates to curb the blood sugar response but now i'm starting to figure out much more subtle aspects of foods that don't work for me and again everyone's an individual your response will vary based on who you are. For me, it's even one bite of a food that doesn't agree with me. And I'll just have the, the, the stomach will just tighten. It's like a sensation of tension. It's not pain. It's not nausea. It's just tension. It's like, as soon as that, that food goes into my stomach, as soon as that food goes into my stomach, there's just a subtle, I'll say contraction. And when I'm listening for it, it's really clear, but In 2020, it's so easy to be doing five things at once, you know, feeding the cat and putting on Spotify and texting this person who just texted me about their workout and thinking about what I'm going to wear to work when I leave in 10 minutes, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a practice that I've refined and developed over the years, which is being present with your food. And this is so important for cyclists in particular, because we have a culture. I, I manifested this so well when I was 25 years old, we have a culture of fast eating. I mean, first of all, you eat on the bike while you're riding and racing all the time. So it's get the food in your mouth hole as fast as possible. But then also since cyclists train so much and endurance athletes in general, have such high metabolisms, it's so common for us to sit down to a table to eat a meal and just be absolutely ravenous, um, that we just shovel food. You know, it's like the Simpsons race blah, go, you know, And that is not a healthy relationship to have with your food for a bunch of reasons. First of all, it taxes your digestion. Digestion begins the moment the food goes in your mouth. So when you chew and masticate your food, physical enzymes come into your saliva that start to pre-digest the food so that when it hits the stomach, things go easier. So the heavier the food is, the better you have to be at chewing it. But also there's a process of, just moving slowly and accepting the food and listening to the body, listening to what it needs when you eat a huge plate of food, you overserve yourself slightly and then you eat it all really quickly. Of course, your body doesn't have time to register how full it is, and then afterwards you go, "Oh, that was like a little too much I had like twelve bites too much i didn 't need to eat that much When you slow down, this helps to enable you to understand where the natural sort of stopping point in a meal is. For me, that's satiation, not fullness. I don't need till I'm stuffed. The exception being if I know that I'm going to ride, you know, eight hours the next day and I sat down to the table quite hungry. So it's always about context to a degree. But when I know that I'm not riding the next day, I don't need to stuff myself at dinner, even if the food tastes really good. Let's be, I'm always searching for that balance, that ideal sort of push and pull between eating too much and eating too little, which is not to say that I strive to reach satiation point exactly at every meal. I also practice and have practice for several months. Now a once a week about, it ends up being about a 22 hour fast. And that's typically on Mondays. I eat dinner Sunday night. I try to button it up a little on the early side. So I'm not having some snack. Uh, Sometimes after dinner, I'll have a peach or something like that right now. It's peach season. So they're pretty good or some berries, a little bit of berries or something as a dessert, maybe a square dark chocolate now and again Been eating a lot less of that recently. I'll try and button that up by six, 7 PM. And then I won't have anything to eat except black coffee and water until dinner the following night on Monday. So it ends up being not quite 24 hours. And I found this practice really helped me regulate blood sugar. Blood sugar issues are very common for endurance athletes because why? Because we're so carbohydrate focused and we're shoveling so many carbs in our mouth so quickly all the time. So when I sit down for my meal, I'll take a moment and just look at the food and I'll say a short prayer. I will just recognize the fact that it doesn't have to be anything super esoteric or spiritual, but I just want to recognize the fact that I have this beautiful meal in front of me that I'm grateful for it because not everyone right now has that. Some people are really stressing about where their next meal is going to come from. So I don't want to take for granted that I've got this plate of food. And then I'm going to take my time when I eat it. And the simple way for me to do that is take one bite and put the fork down in between every, bite. That's a really easy way for me to monitor how quickly the food comes in. Um, Jonathan voters and I have shared a lot of meals together and especially as young riders. And I remember him marveling at how I could put a bite in my mouth and then get another bite loaded on the fork and be chewing the first bite and then insert another bite at the same time. So it's like a constant rotation food conveyor and he can't really do that for whatever reason. He eats much more slowly than I do. Um, which is a good habit to have. And I remember him pointing that out to me. I was completely unconscious of it until he noticed it and we talked about it. And then I thought about it and I was like, this is kind of weird. Actually, how does this work? How did I get this habit? I don't know, but I think it's just, I do a lot of things very quickly. And as a cyclist that gets reinforced, you know, it's also reinforced by the early race start. Cause you get up and immediately you've got to eat something. If you're the type who eats before early race starts. So, I really encourage people to slow down when they're eating their food. It is very common. As I was just saying for endurance athletes to have blood sugar challenges later in their, in their lives, especially once they stop racing, because you're used to burning and using so many carbs and look, I'll just say this point blank. Uh, I'll hope to get into this with a future episode with Dr. Scott story when he comes on, but what I want to talk about is the fact that athletes can have actually pretty severe blood sugar regulation issues, but they're camouflaged by exercise. They're obfuscated by your activity. So bike racers love to justify carbs and then they sit down for breakfast and it's this giant pile of pancakes with a gallon of maple syrup on top. Right. And then, or French toast or whatever, or donuts. And "Ah, I'm going to burn it off on the bike. Okay. And then they do, they go ride their bike for five hours and they go, look, I was fine. I never had a blood sugar crash. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to take a nap in the middle of my two hour of my five hour ride, two hours in. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that meal was really an optimal choice for you. And also exercise curbs the insulin response. That doesn't mean that you don't get a blood sugar spike. And it doesn't mean that the blood sugar, the high insulin load meal was optimal for you now during a bike race, you could argue that it is provided that it's sustainable and that you don't eventually fall off the cliff. And this is why God made pasta. Pasta in particular is, it is rocket fuel. It is compressed rocket fuel. Literally it is carbohydrates that have been hardened into like a little brick. I mean, take dry pasta out of a box and feel it and bite some of it. You'll see what I mean. It's got this texture. It's carbohydrate that's just been compressed and molded and smashed into this little nucleus of power. And if you look at blood sugar studies of people who eat pasta, what it does is it jacks your blood sugar sky high and your blood sugar stays really high for a long period of time. So, based on that, I figured this out years ago. Having pasta the night before a race is actually kind of a not a great choice in my opinion. Why do you want high blood sugar while you're in bed all night? Right? Actually, you don't. You want high blood sugar during your race. So pasta is, I'll say this very carefully. Pasta is a very, very good choice as a pre-race meal. That's assuming a bunch of different things. If you're really sensitive to gluten and you don't do well on gluten, which I'm one of those people, Then do you want to have something that gives you good blood sugar, but also raises inflammation rates when you're doing a very inflammatory activity? Well, maybe you decide to do it. Just understand that there will be consequences for all that inflammation. Inflammation is like a sliding scale. And the more you make choices that increase inflammation, the more you got to deal with it in some form down the road. So, okay. Maybe you make that trade for this criterion because you really want to win it. Maybe you do that once a month for a bike race for a gravel race or whatever you're doing or hill climb. I know there aren't a lot of races right now. So about once a month is pretty normal, but in a, in a more traditional season, when you're racing Saturday and Sunday for several weeks of the, of the season, 20, 25 weeks of the year, if you're eating pasta before every single race and causing all that inflammation and then adding an inflammatory activity on top of it over time, that can cause subtle, but non-trivial implications in your health and your form. So this is one way in which it's really useful to be clued into how your body responds to food. I know that when I eat a bunch of gluten, I get a little bit more swollen, a little more inflamed. I put on a little bit of weight, which is a sign that a food isn't really great for you when you're eating according to your metabolic type and you've got things dialed. Weight gain doesn't really happen unless you're just eating excessive, excessive amounts of food. Calories in, calories out only applies in extremes. Don't count macros. Do not count calories. Don't diet. Don't restrict calories. As a general rule, For most people who aren't really heavy or really light, counting calories is not the way to go. We're talking about extremes. If you're way underweight or way overweight, that's a different discussion. That doesn't apply. But I'm talking if you're within plus or minus, we'll say, five kilograms of your ideal weight or what you perceive to be your ideal weight, counting calories and calories in, calories out is not the focus. The focus is timing and refinement of dietary choices, food choices for your body type, your specific metabolic type, and your individual type. And once you get that dialed and you have an authentic relationship with food, weight will come off and you will find your natural weight, your ideal weight optimally. I honestly believe that disclaimer that's assuming you do not have other underlying health challenges that are far more that will outweigh this equation example intestinal parasite big fungal infection these will obfuscate these results so if you really feel that you're dialed in on your metabolic type and your individual type and you're eating like an angel and your only sweetener is honey and you are doing all the right things you're eating local and organic then and you're still having a lot of challenges losing weight then you need to dig and you got to find someone local or go find a check practitioner Or anyone who's qualified to help you with advanced diet and is thinking outside the box a little bit, not inside the conventional box of grams of protein. So eating is not a formula. As I said, if you know how I feel about formulas and they have their value and they can be instructive in learning, but we need to think about food in terms of what nutrients it can give you and how much sunlight is in it is the way to phrase it. Food is a source of energy and information. And do you want bad information? Do you want low energy or would you like high energy? So to simplify things greatly, the answer is almost always the same. Obtain and consume the highest quality food you possibly can. And the answer to where in the heck do I find that is almost always local organic. I know this is not what you want to hear. (laughs) I know you want me to tell you to go to the supermarket and buy brand X and buy beef that says grass fed on it. I know that this isn't the formulaic answer you were hoping for, which is eat this buy that go to this grocery store that rhymes with mole nudes. And that was the weirdest word that just came out of my mouth (laughs) and buy X, Y, and Z brand or this, that, and that checklist. But unfortunately it's not quite that simple or is it because we have this thing, it's called a search engine. And I don't necessarily recommend the one that rhymes with Lugal. There are many other search engines you can use, but look locally and find your local farmer. This look, I know COVID has hurt a lot of people and many people have died and people have lost their jobs and it's caused a lot of suffering but there is medicine in every lesson. And one of the greatest medicines of this lesson is that local farmers everywhere have opened more channels to direct consumer sales instead of selling only to restaurants or other sources. So this is a thing. Now you can go online and say local organic farm, put it in your search engine, find the person, find the site, make a purchase. Um, when you do the math, And you make an effort to change over to local organic. Initially, the, the setup can be a bit cost prohibitive for some people. I recognize that, but the simple solution, get an extra freezer, put it in your basement or insulated garage, go to your local farmer with a cooler, give them a bunch of cash and come home with a freezer full of meat. This is by far one of the most simple and actionable ways to improve your health. Always choose the highest quality food you can. This almost always means local organic. It means know your farmer, go to them, look at them, watch the cows sitting on the grass and eating grass and being cows or the pigs or the goats or whatever you're getting, choose a variety of meat, rotate your proteins, rotate your vegetables, figure out what works for you. The same goes for vegetables and farms, CSAs purchase local when you can buy local goat cheese. Uh, Get local fresh ideally raw dairy if you can it's a lot healthier for you disclaimer Uh, there's a reason why dairy is homogenized but Homogenized means by definition that the enzymes are dead one of the best Benefits of consuming dairy products from an animal is that it has enzymes in it When you when you pasteurize or homogenize milk or dairy you kill the enzymes. That's what you're doing So yeah, are you getting a safer product Well, yeah, it's been sterilized to a degree, but you're taking away the enzymatic benefits of it. Just know what's happening. Here's another really powerful resource for people that we'll put in the show notes as well. One of my colleagues and classmates in my Czech education system right now is a guy named Eugene Trufkin, and he has a really great resource out in book form. It's called Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide, I believe. So the, the author's name is on the book is you Trufkin. He goes by Eugene it's available on Amazon. And when you buy the book, either the electronic copy or the physical copy, you get a link that helps you, uh, go to a page with a bunch of videos where Eugene walks you through a store. This book is a very quick and easy read. It's super actionable. You could even take it with you to the store, but he decodes the labels you see in grocery stores. And when I say decode, you'll know what I mean when you read the book. This is just such a simple, actionable guide. It, it helps you figure out what, what the label actually means. What does organic mean? What does grass-fed mean? What does pasture-raised mean? What does a pasture egg mean? What does that mean? Eugene breaks all this down in really easy, clear detail. And I hate to tell you, but you're going to be bummed out when you read it because there is so much... Sleight of hand and trickery going on in grocery store labels that it's sad. I'll give you one brief example. In the last 10 years, we've seen an explosion. Now you go to the deli counter and there is, you know, beef, and then there's grass fed beef and the grass fed beef is two, three, four, five dollars more a pound. As Eugene explains, and he knows this inside out, this is insider baseball. He worked in the industry for years on a regenerative farm. And regenerative agriculture is a whole fascinating concept. If you don't know what it is and you want to look into it, go nuts, go forth and make it nice by search. But Eugene's worked on a, on a couple different regenerative farms for a few years, and he's learned all this stuff from the inside. When you go to the butcher counter and you see steak, and then you see grass fed steak for more dollars. The assumption is of course that I want the grass fed steak, assuming you can't afford it and you believe in everything I'm saying, you're going to get the grass fed steak. So you put down your extra $4 a pound for the grass-fed skirt steak. Here's the challenge. Here's the problem. All cows are grass-fed. If you try to grain feed a cow from the time it's born, it will die. Cows eat grass. It's only in the last few months of their lives that they are fed corn or grains, usually in pellet form, to fatten them up for slaughter. Now here's the challenge. I think some of you know this already, but if you do, just bear with me while I explain it, please. A cow is a ruminant. It. It's got 12 stomachs, 14 stomachs. I don't know, 88 stomachs. It's meant to eat grass and digest this grass, and that gives the cow, assuming the grass is normal, healthy grass, it's not covered with glyphos- glyphosate and other things. A cow's a ruminant. It. It's got 12 or 14 stomachs or some huge number of stomachs, and it's me- cows are meant to eat grass. And when they do that, they have a particular composition to their fat, and that fat is quite healthy for humans to consume. The fat composition changes when the animal is fed grass or corn or GMO grain pellets in the last few months of its life to fatten up for slaughter. And if it's a, an industrialized operation with tens of thousands of heads of cattle, then they're also injected with antibiotics to keep them safe because they're fed in such close quarters that if one cow gets sick, they all get sick. And so they're just protecting their investment. So now you're getting trace amounts of weed killer on the grass and antibiotics and who knows what else they put in those. But those are, those are concerns. But the other concern is the the content, the nutrient content of the fat. The fat now becomes problematic. This is why at least in part, people began to believe that consuming red meat would cause heart disease because when you consume industrialized farmed red meat, that is on cattle that is made in these huge, enormous operations, it can give you heart disease because the fat content is filled with a bunch of garbage that does not have a place in a human body. Do not eat that. This is why the answer is always local organic. Know your local farmer. Source the highest quality meat you can. This drives a lot of people to vegetarianism. Because they see a documentary and they draw a weird boundary around a certain food. They see a documentary about how industrialized chicken farms are horrible, horrible things. And they say, well, I'm not eating chicken anymore. Well, you're right. I don't eat that either. If that's your definition of vegetarian, then I'm a vegetarian because I don't eat that chicken. When I fly in an airplane, I don't eat a chicken sandwich I buy at the kiosk before I get on the plane. I'll just not eat. Call me a food snob. I get it. Not everyone can afford this. This is Affluent person's problems. I'm not insensitive to this issue. I'm just explaining the way it is. You should strive to always eat the best food you can. So Eugene breaks all this down. Here's the problem. When the beef says grass fed at the market, if you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. There are some duplicitous people out there. And what they do is they label the beef grass fed and what they're doing is they're still fattening the cows in the final three months of their life with pellets that contain GMO corn and GMO soy and GMO, who knows what else, and they put grass in the pellets. so this is how they get around the labeling. You guys are dicks. I'm just going to say it. that in if you want I't know. This is really frustrating because. We live in the United States of America and we should be free to do things. And one of those freedoms should be to walk into a market and buy something healthy. But when dollars are at stake and marketing is a powerful force in our lives, we have to unfortunately be critical consumers and accept the fact that there are people who want to take advantage of us. And then you get into the debate of government and how much regulation there should be. And that is a holy mess that I want nothing to do with. So I highly recommend Eugene's book as a resource. It's really informative. It's simple and the videos are great. He goes through a lot of the same stuff. So if you prefer video content, honestly, it's worth it to buy the book. I don't think it costs very much. And then just watch the videos. Um, I gave this book to some of my family members and they were These are people who don't think the way I think about food and they were pretty impressed and they read it and it was easy. And these are people who aren't normally open to that kind of thing. So it's a powerful tool for you, but also maybe for your loved ones or your friends who are a little bit resistant to some of these ideas, perhaps. Okay. I realize again, that what I'm saying is it might rub some people the wrong way. I'm I'm not trying to be insensitive to someone's economic status. I realize that everyone can afford to go buy a $14 grass fed steak. And so there are some ways around this. If you can buy local in bulk and buy a freezer, then you buy greater quantities and then you save money. When you buy direct from your farmer, you're cutting out the middleman. It's cheaper to buy for directly from the farmer than it is from the supermarket. But of course you have to have the cash up front to buy a new freezer potentially. And that's not without risk. If the power goes out for two days, you lose a grand worth of meat. You're gonna be pretty bumped. Uh, knock on wood. So far, so good for us, but also I want to make a really important point, which is that when we make an active choice to step forward and be empowered about our diet and we decide I'm going to optimize things, I'm going to only eat, I'm go- I have to eat, I must eat. As soon as we apply those boxes around our ideology, we set up the potential for suffering or stress and the objective of what is the point of eating healthy it's to increase health. So if I take two steps forward by saying, or three steps, let's say I'm going to, I'm going to order from my local CSA step number one. Great. I'm going to order from my local farmer and get meat there. Step number two, when I go to the store, I'm only going to buy organic step number three. Okay. Those are three really big steps, but now let's say that your local farmers out of meat when you go to buy and you have no choice but to go to the store. Or let's say you go to the store and you just don't have enough money that week to buy the organic strawberries or they don't have organic strawberries in stock or organic, whatever, vegetables, whatever you need to get for this recipe or whatever food you want to buy. They don't have purple potatoes. All they have are russets and pasta. Okay, now you're in this point where potentially your health choices are going to cause you stress because you've made a commitment or a promise to yourself to eat better, but now you can't get that stuff. Or you go out to eat with friends and they choose the Olive Garden. And I guarantee you there's no organic food being sold at the Olive Garden. Or if it is, it's being greenwashed. I'm not bashing anybody who works at the Olive Garden. Well, maybe I am. But whatever. My point is you put yourself in a situation where you want to hang out with your friends and do the right thing. Or you go over to your mother-in-law's house for dinner and she makes a casserole. And you're going, what is in this thing? None of this works for my diet. So we can take three steps backwards quite easily when we become very attached or rigid about our dietary beliefs. There's a balance in there. There has to be a balance because if your first primary goal is to increase health for yourself and you're walking through the world with so much stress and anxiety about the food you're going to eat because you're clamping down so hard and you're so boundaried around what you're going to eat, then you're undoing all the benefit of making those positive choices potentially. And that doesn't make sense. So we have to work with the universe. We have to, we have to have a little bit of flow and understanding that it's going to be okay. And ultimately, you know, we all ate pizza bagels when we were 12 or at least I did. And man, I'm still paying the price for pizza bagels and ice cream sandwiches at lunch. Honestly, I am to this day. My adult health has been compromised by hostess fruit pies that I ate when I was in eighth grade, man, if you've never had a hostess fruit pie, I don't recommend it, but you want to talk about a, a child's box of cocaine for kids. I mean, it, I don't know if I had to make it up right now, it's probably 24 grams of saturated fat. It's fried. It's like a donut with a sugar coating with fruit in the middle, but it's air quotes fruit. It's like processed gelatinous fruit. It's got every filler and processed chemical you could ever think of in there. You literally can't eat a worse food. I'm going to make you a no list. And the top of it is Hostess fruit pies. And number two, by the way, is fake sugar. This includes Splenda, NutraSweet. Do not put that shit in your body. It is toxic poison. If you're eating, if you're drinking diet soda, man, stop it. I'm just, sorry, I'm getting kind of fired up right now. That stuff has no place in a human body. Do not eat that stuff. It's toxic poison. You're welcome. So, where was I? Oh, yes. Toxic poison of hostess fruit pies in my body. Look, there's got to be a line that you draw, but that line needs to be a pretty, a very straight and thick line. That is, if you know that you're going to have a really bad reaction to a food, then just say, thank you so much for cooking this meal for me, grandma, but I cannot eat this food it will make me sick. I really appreciate your love and effort, but we got to find a way to take the asparagus out of this burrito because I every time I eat asparagus I throw up. Whatever that's a legitimate line. Don't throw up because grandma made you a burrito with asparagus in it. I know it's a really obtuse example. But if you're allergic to food, that's an easy one. But it's also easy for you to tell people that you are allergic to a food if you really don't want to eat it because you know it's going to cause an upset stomach. You know it's going to cause inflammation. You know it's going to give you a mudslide in the toilet the next day, right? These are not things you should put yourself through to appease other people. So let's be clear about that. But the balance is that when you go out to dinner with friends and you are faced with menu choices that are not real. you know, none of them are ideal. It's like, well, I don't know, voting in the next election. You're looking for the lesser of the evils. Oh, we're not at the dinner table, so I can talk politics, right? I'll just leave it at that. So you know that this menu is filled with some really nasty foods, you know, Monte Cristo sandwiches, for example, or fettuccine Alfredo, which for me would be an absolute disaster what is diet about? It's not about perfection. It's not about flogging yourself. It's not about suffering. It's not about sacrifice. It's about making better choices. It's about optimizing food choices for yourself. So you do the best you can and you get a little creative and you don't worry about the fact that the kitchen is cooking with canola oil. You just say, I'd like a Caesar salad. Can you put a chicken breast on there for it for me? And you enjoy your salad and bless it and chew it slowly and enjoy some water and maybe a nice glass of red with it or whatever you're deal is, and then accept it and enjoy your company and bless the food as it comes to you, which also sounds esoteric and weird, but it's a thing. People do it. So don't flog yourself. This isn't a mission to become a, a diet zealot. This isn't an instruction for you to walk through the world rigidly with dogmatic beliefs about what you can and can't eat. This is a recommendation for you to refine your relationship with food. This is a philosophy about embracing healthy food and bringing food that gives you good energy into your life. And then that enables you to express your highest potential. I hope that makes sense. There is a fine line there and I've seen people go both ways on it. And I've had those moments myself when you're at the Redland State Race in California and you're in some random restaurant and breakfast is... You know, industrialized eggs and oatmeal and pancakes. So you just make the best choice you can. Just make the best choice you can and know your body, and you'll be okay. You're not going to die from one meal unless you choke on it and pass out. But, obtuse example. A few last bits that hopefully are actionable on a micro level Colby's Never List. I already went into this a little bit, but I'll just give you the quick and dirty foods I never eat I never eat fake sugar I do not ever drink diet soda I don't really drink soda rarely if ever uh if I do some more long bike races I'm showing up with a coke in a feed zone or something that's okay nobody's gonna die from a couple cokes we don't buy soda or soda pop if you're from the midwest and put it in our fridge it's just not a thing. Fried foods. I, I don't eat fried foods, Uh, fried foods. I've learned the hard way. They just, the the fat content of fried food. And if you want to dig into this, I'll let you be free. But when you fry food, it changes the fat into a, a form that is really not, doesn't do great with the human body. And my body in particular really does not react well to any fried food. I don't, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. French fries, fried ice cream, fried, Anything, onions, nothing. Uh ice cream, even not fried ice cream. I I do not do well with ice cream. It's the it's the dairy, and I'll just to unpack this very briefly, there's a difference between dairy, cow dairy, and all other animal dairy. Cow dairy is A1, all other dairy is A2. These are the types of proteins in the milk. And it is pretty common for people to be reactive to A1 dairy. Now the milk board has done a wonderful job of telling us how healthy milk is for you, especially cow's milk. So a lot of us grew up drinking giant glasses of milk with our dinner to get our vitamin D and our calcium. And I'll tell you, that's a load of crap and that a one dairy does irritate a lot of people's guts. It causes chronic inflammation. Some people can do just fine on it. Again, you need to figure out what works for you. You can go get a crazy biome test that costs a thousand dollars and do this analysis. And that might give you some insight. You can also just stop drinking cow's milk for three weeks straight, have no cow dairy at all, and then sit down and have a glass of milk one night and just see what happens. Listen to your body. And there's a really good chance you'll figure it out. If you hear nothing, you don't get any gas, no bloating. You don't have the shits. You don't burp a lot. You don't feel sluggish. Your stomach doesn't feel like you swallowed a rock. You don't wake up the next day and have to blow your nose five times, right? A1 dairy is associated with increased mucus production for some people. If you don't have any of those symptoms or anything else really negative, I mean, it can be anything, because it'll manifest in your weak link. When you challenge the system, the body system, it'll show up wherever your weak link is, and you have to figure out what those links are, what your own little levers are, that your little shining red lights. If you don't have those, then you're probably OK with A1 dairy. And if you like it, then go forth and drink the organic full fat, the healthiest milk you can find and enjoy it and have goat uh, cow cheese. Enjoy it on your pizza. Good for you. Uh, me, I'm an A2 type, not an A1, meaning I can have goat dairy or sheep cheese. I have goat's milk. I'll use coconut milk in my coffee. Cow's milk does not do well with me. I can consume small amounts of it and be okay. So if I'm out with someone and we have a pizza, I can have a slice, maybe two at the most, but a lot of that refined wheat and dairy, and I'm in a bad shape. So I can have limited amounts of it. I'm not going to die from one slice of pizza. These are bits that you can figure out about yourself and hopefully lead you to some insight. But again, you just have to listen to them. Another point, Paul checks for white devils. These are foods that I avoid in my daily life and they, once you're aware of them and you avoid them, they can help you out quite a bit. You want to ideally avoid completely or minimize these in your diet. And they are white sugar, white salt, that's table salt, white flour, and white cow dairy, A1 dairy. These are some of the most commonly served foods on the planet, and they are all processed to death when they're in their white form. We don't find white foods in nature very often, and I don't find any white sugar in a forest. Cow dairy, homogenized, processed, pasteurized cow dairy, it's a pretty dead food. Um, So, and salt, you're going, what's wrong with salt? Well, there's nothing wrong with salt when it's salt in its natural form, i.e. sea salt. White salt is highly processed, so it's devoid of micronutrients. Just people will probably want to debate me on this. The most natural form of food is always the best. It's what your body is used to genealogically. It is what your system will work best with. Whole foods is always the preferential form. It's always better to have a whole vegetable, a whole piece of fruit rather than some refined form, powdered form. I'm not saying I don't ever eat powdered, powdered vegetables. I do use occasionally I'll use some of those mixes, but my standards are pretty high on what I put in those on on which ones I'll consume for sure. All these rules that I'm talking about, as far as whole foods apply to on the bike as well. There's nothing more refined than cake frosting or actually the most refined food I can think of. Is a gel. A gel is cake frosting with a fancy wrapper and amino acids. And oh, it's $3. Cake frosting is a lot cheaper, by the way. And most bars that we eat on the bike are basically like crackers. They're molded, they're cooked in this giant vat of goop, and then they spit them out with a little spigot and mold them into bars. I mean, when you think about that, to me, that's kind of disgusting. Why do we need to take foods and change them so much? Oh, I know why. It's because someone thinks that mouthfeel's better. Mouthfeel? Seriously? What the hell is that? Someone wants to add a bunch of preservatives and crap to it so it stays on a shelf for a long time. And we also want to put it into a rectangle because rectangles fit in boxes and boxes fit on trucks and on airplanes and on boats. And if you put them on the slow boat, then you need even more preservatives. Because if it takes a month to ship here from a factory in a different country, and then it has to go on trucks on either end, that's... Six weeks, eight weeks. By the time it gets to your grocery store, and then when the stock boys stock it, they put the new boxes at the back of the shelf and pull the old ones to the front. So when you're buying a bar that's been on a shelf for two months in the store, or in the back storeroom in a in a fridge, that food is really old. There's not a lot of sunlight in that. So when you're on the bike, what should you eat? How about a banana? Remember JV's story about Rigo eating like seven bananas a day at the Tour de France? Well, he didn't win, but he got second. I, to me, the banana is one of the most perfect energy foods for on the bike. The only challenge with a banana is that you can't have it in your pocket for more than about six hours without it turning brown on a hot day. That's the challenge of a banana. But bananas are brilliant. Whole foods are brilliant. There are a few bars that I like. Uh, that do quite well. That are basically minimally processed. They have real foods in them. Uh, one of them is Enduro Bites. They're out of Colorado Springs. It's a fig-based bar. Super simple ingredients list. Another is Dr. Allen Lim's Scratch Bars. Those have great simple ingredients list. They have a miso bar that's got kind of a funky flavor. Um, I love the fact that they did a savory bar. That one's it's a little too much black pepper for me personally, but it's a uh, like every so many bars are so sickeningly sweet and when you do a stage race or a long even a single day road race and you're eating gels and bars and gels and bars it's just sugar overload just even taste wise let alone blood sugar wise so i'm way into the savory bars i do well on my training rides with bars that are more nut oriented um i can't eat endless amounts of nuts but i can have a fair amount of them and do fine one is called the patter bar p-a-t-t-e-r that one's i found to be quite quite good recently So there's some options out there. I mean, for me, when I'm choosing a bar, people ask me all the time what I should eat. These are some good choices. Uh, Ben Greenfield makes a bar, a Keon bar. That's not bad. It's good in hot weather because it doesn't melt too much. It's a little dry. The ingredients list is okay. It gives me reasonable energy. Um, And I think his, his ingredients are pretty well sourced. So there's some ideas if you're looking for bars on the bike that you want to eat, but you know, Also, there's this thing called cooking, and Alan's got a great Scratch Labs cookbook out where he talks about making edibles, which is literally cooking your own, making your own granola bars and rice bars with egg and little bits of prosciutto in there. That's food. That's real food that you can eat on the bike. And this is a movement that Alan and Bijou started years ago when they wrote those those cookbooks, is to get away from processed bars. So if you're if you must pick a bar to go on the bike. I recommend something that has the simplest ingredients list possible and you should know what all those ingredients are. All those ingredients should be found in a forest or on a farm. Ingredients like almonds, figs, chocolate chips. That's stretching it a bit, but not the end of the world. And gels are, man, nothing breaks my heart more than when someone's like, oh, I went out for a five-hour ride and I had six gels. Are you kidding me? Don't eat gels on a training ride. Please just stop it. Gels are race food. They're like pasta. They're there for when you're in a crosswind at 54 K an hour inches from riding off into the gutter, hanging on for dear life. And you're starting to feel your blood sugar go down. That is a time for a gel there. Gels are for when you're cross cresting the summit of an eight minute climb in the middle of a cross country mountain bike race. And you've got a descent coming where if you don't have both hands on the bars, you will die. That's a time for a gel and you need calories. This is what gels are for people. You can eat a banana almost as quickly, but you'd have to unwrap it and banana peels weren't really made to come off that quick, especially modern ones, which are now bred to be more weather resistant. So gels are for race moments. If you got to have one on a training ride, maybe one is possibly I can give you a hall pass on that, but don't eat gels in training rides. What are you doing? Come on, make better choices, people. That's my message. Uh, I invite you to explore your diet, explore your own metabolic type. Consider that a starting point. It's not a cast system of rigid levers or boundaries that you have to subscribe to in your life. It's just an idea for you to ultimately turn inward and have connection with your own body and discover what foods work well for you. That's the goal. Go forth and enjoy healthy food. If you have questions about stuff that I missed or a specific dietary thing you'd like to bring up, Hit me back. Cycling in alignment at fastlabs.com. Standard disclaimer applies. Doing the best I can to stay on top of the email landslide, but don't be shy. Reach out, and we will fire the photons on all of my questions as best I can. You probably figured out I'm not a registered dietitian. I haven't been trained in nutrition. This is just stuff I've learned over the course of my adventure on this beautiful globe we have spinning through the earth, through the galaxy at a bazillion miles an hour. Thank you, Gravity, for not letting me be flung helplessly off into space. And thank you for listening to my ramblings. I hope you enjoyed it. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to my diet thoughts. I hope you found them insightful. It was a lot of information. And I may have wandered a bit. My brain does not always run on a linear track. So I wanted to leave you with a few brief bullet points on my overarching concepts. One, eat real food. This means something that can be or has been picked, peeled, skinned or caught. Two, the default is always to choose local organic food whenever possible. Another way to think about this is always choose the highest quality ingredients you can. That way, if organic or Demeter certified food isn't available, you operate under the assumption that the best choice you can make is the one to make in any given situation. Three, I think it's best to avoid overly rigid or dogmatic thinking when you're considering diet or when you're choosing foods. The point of living in a conscious way in which you try to maximize health is to approach life in a fashion that maximizes enjoyment and minimizes negative stress. So when we think about food or when we're, we're making food choices, if we're rigid and dogmatic and inflexible, that's going to add stress. It's going to invite us, uh, an undercurrent of stress into our lives. And that's contrary to the objective of living life in a joyful and happy way. If we have too many shoulds about food, this is what I should eat. This is what I have to eat, then that fixation can cause us stress and this is something to be avoided. So keep this in mind. It's a bit of a paradox, but the idea is to always make better choices about food. And that brings me right into point number four. These two sort of bleed together, but I think they have some independent elements. Perfection is not the goal. This isn't a situation where you're grading yourself constantly and feeling as though you're failing if you don't make a perfect choice or a better choice. Living life is about being a human and food is part of living life. Food should be a joyful experience. Food should add positive energy and information to your human existence. So when we grade ourselves constantly and we See other people as scoring higher than us, or in a comparative mindset, or we compare ourselves to our own model of perfection. That can be a situation where we put ourselves in a less than position, and that's not the objective again. The, the idea is to eat consciously and carefully consider the foods that you want to have in your body. The best time to have control over your foods is when you're eating by yourself or when you're at the store. There are other times in your life where we accept that we'll have less control over what we eat. That shouldn't be a showstopper or a stress causing situation. The ultimate goal is dietary flexibility and durability, meaning your organism can handle a variety of foods and not fall down, not have consequences. Feedback, questions, comments, cycling in alignment at fastlabs.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening. Eat smart.